Welcome back to Mud Between Your Toes Year Ender 2020. And talking of 2020, the year that was is finally behind us and we can look forward to 2021. Let's hope that it doesn't hold too many nasty surprises. Today's Year Enders podcast include highlights from past episodes from season two. In today's episode, you can listen to segments from my interviews with Sarah Fox, Kinrick Templecamp, Zanellian Schlovel, and David Fox. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, there are some topics I always felt I should, for obvious reasons, keep well clear of. Generally speaking, these concern women's health, and in particular, periods. However, the lady I'm talking to today was instrumental in introducing the menstrual cup to thousands of women in Zimbabwe, many living on remote parts of the country. I'd never heard about the menstrual cup before and I felt that I needed to find out what all the fuss was about. So Sarah Fox, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello Pete, thank you so much for inviting me along today. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure. Let's get to the nitty gritty. What is a menstrual cup or as they're known in your company, the Viva Lily Cup? Okay, so a menstrual cup is made from medical grade silicon. And the cup that we have that we've designed is like a bell shape, sort of upside down bell shape. And it's designed to just be worn internally instead of a tampon and it collects the menstrual flow. And it's really safe um, and really comfortable. And it's kind of the way forward. It's, it's the way that we are going with menstrual care. Tell me, it might seem naive, but who is the Viva Lily Cup for? The menstrual cup is for everyone. I don't want to say that oh, this is just for you know, people, disadvantaged women in, in Zimbabwe or in Africa, because we use it, you know, it's for everyone. Um, and I think that it's probably not the product you would necessarily start a child on who's just getting her first period, but that's more psychologically, it, you need to be ready to use something that's inserted. Most children don't start with a tampon, for example. But once you're over that, once you're kind of used to your body and you know what's happening, really from the age of, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, probably about 14, and going all the way through to the end of your period at 50, it is a really amazing product. And probably you might add, sorry, I'm just adding quickly. I think that for people, we, we tend to forget about people in menopause and women going through menopause, that's when your body really just goes on its own mission. And most women, you know, suddenly having had regular periods for, um, you know, 30 years, suddenly their period goes completely mad and it could be at any time it could be a lot it could be a little so the menstrual cup for older women particularly is incredible but here in Africa it's a product that is really suitable for schoolgirls and going up it interestingly and we don't even really know why I mean doctors don't really know why it reduces using a menstrual cup reduces the length of your period quite often and it can reduce the pain and we think that the reason it reduces pain is because it doesn't 
pull like a tampon or a pad has lots of chemicals in it and so it's designed to pull and absorb all the blood but it also absorbs all the natural fluid that's in your body anyway and so it becomes very uncomfortable whereas when you use a menstrual cup it's just sitting there doing nothing and it just lets the blood drop into it and therefore it's probably why it's less painful tell me about the the work that you've done in the rural areas what were the challenges and well what were the successes has it been a success in the rural areas yeah it really has i think that um i think in zimbabwe there's been this kind of idea okay so culturally we know that you know there's there's quite a lot of stigma around menstruation that there's an issue with if you use a product that is inserted that you're going to lose your virginity um and we found that it was very difficult initially to kind of get any traction because we would go and see a few of these NGOs and the people, the heads of these projects would be quite conservative Zimbabwean ladies and very much wanting to uphold traditions and cultural views. And then we discovered that actually, if we got out into the rural area, the landscape changed completely because if you are wealthy enough to be able to buy any product that you want, you're wealthy enough to uphold cultural traditions. But if you go out, so for example, if you want to use a pad and you can buy, afford to buy pads every month, that may be what you need to do. And, and that's great and you don't need to change. Um, but if you're in the rural areas where you don't have access to anything, then what we found is that this idea of not inserting something simply doesn't exist. Um, we actually last week made a film, which hopefully will be going out in the next week or two, showing how women in rural areas make a kind of tampon out of cow dung and how they insert mealy cobs, these soft mealy cobs, to use like a tampon. Um, so it's, it's, and that's a traditional form of, of using cow dung and stuff for, for menstrual care. So once you're outside of Harare, actually, the uptake and acceptability was so high. It's, you know, 98%. You know, now there's a bit of a change in the cultural view and, and the economy. I mean, most people, 90% or more, probably more, are below the international poverty line here. So it's just, you know, I spoke to one lady yesterday who said that her husband gives her 20 US dollars a month to feed her family and to pay her school fees and everything, everything that she needs. And she's got five children. So she's trying to live 27 of them off $20 a month. Um, and the mothers, I mean, obviously when you introduce a new product like the menstrual cup, it's really important to include the mothers, the caretakers, often in the rural areas will include the, the men in the conversation, the, the leaders or the elders of the community. Because the more people you include, the easier it is to get that acceptability and people understand. And once people understand, it's, a, it's just so easy because what are their options? Leaves, grass, cow dung, bits of yeah. rags. Uh, how is the cup better than the disposable pad or tampon as far as an environmental point of view goes? Oh, I'm really glad you asked that. Um, okay, so first of all, there's no disposing of anything. So you have to think that if you were to use 
a pad or a tampon, you've got to get rid of it. And obviously that, that doesn't happen with the cup. And the reasons that that's, and you, you, the reasons that's good is, one of them is actually a, a taboo about who sees your menstrual blood. So women and girls, I mean, we went to a training um, a, a few months ago where there was a lady trying to sell disposable pads. And she then told us, uh, the whole group, about these disposable pads and then proceeded to show us how a girl must take the pad apart after she's used it, wash the blood, and then dispose of the rest of the pad. Because if somebody sees your menstrual blood or gets hold of your menstrual blood, they can, in theory, practice magic against you. Oh my God. So from that point of view, not having something that you're disposing of, or okay, you're obviously disposing of the blood, but you can be very much in control of how you dispose of the blood out of a cup compared to how you dispose of it from a pad. So environmentally, if you have, well, obviously we know that a pad is, has plastic in it, a disposable pad, about, they say about four plastic bags worth of plastic is in one pad. Um, and if you think that you're probably going to want to use three or four a day, that's quite a lot of plastic, um, which we don't have. Then also from an environmental point of view, for them, it's more about how much water so many places in, it, in Zimbabwe have really limited access to water. And if you have to wash a disposable pad, we were talking about this yesterday, actually, because they say you need about five liters of water, which seems quite a lot, unless you break it down and you think, well, actually the first liter or two, you're gonna have to soak the pad. Then the next liter or two, you're gonna wash it with soap and then you've got to rinse it. So then five liters doesn't sound very much. But if you've got to walk two or three kilometers to get that water, then it's a lot of water that you need. And then the other problem with the pad is that a reusable pad is that it needs to be hung up in sunshine because otherwise you get bacteria on it. And as I've just said, you know, we can't, they're not really supposed to, or it's, it's, it's not considered correct to show people a menstrual product. So you can't put the pad on the line. So a lot of girls will try and dry it under the mattress or under clothes and then it doesn't dry properly and then get yeast infections and bacterial infections and then that becomes can become a problem a reproductive health problem that is you know for life um so really it's about you can't wash it very well uh, you can't and also you think you're going to a school where in the summer the temperature might be over 30 degrees and if you have to change your pad, where are you going to put the one you've just used? In a bag, if you've got one, in a classroom, where it's going to frankly smell pretty bad very quickly. So first of all, yes, you can put the cup in place first thing in the morning and you can leave it for 10 hours, 12 hours. You can sleep with it, um, you can travel. It's so easy to manage. So first of all, from that point of view, yes, you can put it in in the morning and take it out at night and it would be fine. I mean, everybody's washing their bodies. So when you go and have a shower, you just take it out at the end of the day, wash it with a little bit of soap and water whilst you're having your shower um, or bath, you know. And then at the end of the cycle, you sterilize it. But what we say to the ladies is if they, I mean, ideally, if you were in a nice kitchen with a cooker and a pot, you could boil it 
in the pot on the stove. You can boil but, the cup. What, what, yeah, I mean, yeah, what, yeah. What's the cup made from? It's made from medical grade silicon. Okay. So you just put it in boiling water. But if you can't do that, and some women can't, then we say take a tin, like an empty baked bean tin or something, or cobra is quite often what they have, um, and then pour boiling water in it, put the cup in it, and just leave it till it's cool. And it so, will be fine. So what's the lifespan of a cup then, Sarah? 10 years. And you know, there's no NGO that I know of in this country that will continue to provide disposable pads ad infinitum. It, it just isn't financially viable apart from anything else. So there is this idea that what can you have that, that you are using, that we, you, we know we can give out a cup and that child or that girl has got menstrual health care for the next 10 years. There's nothing else that will do that. And I just wanted to add, if it's okay, that, you know, having menstrual health care is really, really important to creating gender equality. If you can't stay in school because you've got your period, then you can't take, you miss out on one exam, that's your education over. If you miss out on two or three lessons that you can't make up, that's your education over. So we see a huge proportion of children, girls, dropping out usually at the end of primary school. They don't get to the end of secondary school. They maybe get to sort of GCSE level and then they drop out. As soon as their menstruation comes in, it starts to be an issue. And it isn't true to say, so I have to add this as well, because there's a lot of talk about, oh, they drop out of school because they're menstruating. They don't necessarily. They may be in the lesson, but they can't concentrate and they're yeah. not present. And so they drop out because they lose too much education rather than I've got my period and I'm staying at home. It's more the impact of constantly mm -hmm. losing lessons over a period of time that sees their marks drop and then they drop out. <clears throat> and also dropping out of school has a really big impact on how you will, whether you will become part of a child marriage, whether you will become sexually assaulted, and we were talking to this guy yesterday and one of it, this Shanduko, and he was saying that 70% of the girls aged between 12 and 16 in Epworth have been sexually assaulted. And a lot of that will be when they're not in school, when they're kind of drifting. So it's so important to keep girls in school. Wow, that's quite incredible, Sarah. Yeah, menstrual health has so many implications. It, I mean, it obviously has an implication for the environment, for education, for health, for getting people out of the poverty trap. If you can, if you can manage your menstrual health better, you can do better in all the different areas of your life. And that's why the butterfly cup, sorry, just said the wrong word. That's why the, the Viva Lily cup is just such an incredible product for for Africa, for Zimbabwe. Now, if you want to find out more about the Viva Lily Cup, you can go to the website www.vivalily.com or the Instagram and Facebook accounts at Viva Lily Co. Hello, you soon learn to expect the unexpected from the dead and the living. Wise words from today's guest one of New Zealand's leading pathologists. 
Dr. Kenrick Temple Camp cut his teeth in the Rhodesian Air Force as a medic during the Bush War. He's written two best-selling books, The Cause of Death and The Quick and the Dead. Dr. Kenrick Temple Camp, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello, Pete. Good to be here. Um, I must confess, Kenrick, on reading The Cause of Death, you come across as a man with a very funny and macabre sense of humor, but also an enormous respect for the deceased and their loved ones. I suspect this is a fairly common trait within the forensic pathology camp. Yes, I, th I think so. I mean, people often ask, how, how do you deal with these terrible things that you see? You know, children who've been killed in accidents or murdered, uh, you know, women raped and strangled and so on. How do you actually deal with the stress of this? And it's, it's a, an interesting question because we don't have counseling or anything like that. Um, and I think that black humor is very much part of every mortuary that I've ever been in, between the pathologists, between the pathologists and the police, the ambulance workers, the firemen, and um, also our mortuary assistants. So I, I think that we all develop that sort of approach to, to life and death. But having humor about somebody who has died violently in some way doesn't imply that there's lack of respect. I think the humor is there for us as an outlet. Our respect for the dead, we don't see them quite as the dead. I, I see them as my patients. I am the last doctor that will ever look after them. I am their last advocate in this life. And my job is to tell their story because they can't do it themselves. So that's the sort of approach that um, I bring to pathology. And I think it's quite common with forensic pathologists. I must tell you, the thing that got me was how TV shows like CSI Miami are an exceptionally sanitized, distant cousin of the real pathology world. Although perhaps BBC's Silent Witness gets a little bit closer. Is that true? Yes, I've watched most of these, but not for long, because uh, as you say, they're very, very sanitized. And of course they have to be. And what you cannot get across on a television program is the amount of liquid involved, the liquidity of death. You know, the amount of blood and fluids in a body is enormous. And when we do an autopsy, it is everywhere. It's a very you know, we always talk about going down to the mortuary and splashing around it uh, in our work. And that's exactly what happens. You can't get that on television. You don't get that sense of liquidity. And the other thing you don't get is the sense of smell. Now, the dead have a smell. And I'm not talking about decomposed bodies. Even people who are freshly dead have quite an unusual aroma. And <clears throat> I once had the opportunity to take <clears throat> a group of coroners around my mortuary and we went and we made sure that it was all clean and there were no bodies lying out there nothing nothing to shock at all and the coroners came in and they stood there a bit uneasily and they looked around and they said what is that funny smell and i'd hardly could hardly notice it and i snuffed it and i said that's the smell of death and they said good lord is that how we smell and i said yep that's exactly how dead humans smell and you never get that on a television program uh, but one case, and I'm referring to the body that was cooked in the car, even got you gagging. In fact, you have a wonderful turn of phrase, I must say. In the book, you say, 
pathology acquaints you with some pretty choice aromas, but I'd never smelled a stench like this before. It wasn't the smell of death and decay. This was somewhere between truly rancid fat and low-grade paraffin with a sulfuric tincture of rotten eggs. It's a fabulously fascinating case, in fact. Can you tell us what you believe happened during that case? Yeah, this was a most most unusual case. And I have to say my description of the odor there undercooks it a bit. It was much worse than that. Um, this was a case of, of spontaneous combustion, which a lot of people don't believe exists. Uh, and they've, in cases that have been reported, usually they invoke witchcraft or ghosts or something like that. But actually, the, the reality of it is quite simple. It's people who have drunk a vast amount of alcohol, and I'm talking about a really vast amount. And the alcohol gets throughout their bloodstream into their fat and then the fat of their body. And then they go to sleep while they're holding a lighted cigarette and it, their, their um, clothing catches fire, but it doesn't burn, it smolders. And it's like a candle wick and it burns into the fat, which acts like the wax in a candle. And, and of course, you can light a candle in a car and it's not going to set the car on fire. It'll make smoke, but the heat of a candle, you can put your hand right next to a candle flame and it will not do anything put your hand above a candle flame, it gets quite hot. So this man had left the pub and he was driving and he'd bought a bottle of vodka there. He'd been drinking all night, bought a, a bottle of vodka quite illegally from the bar owner and headed off across country. And he stopped out on a rural road, drank the bottle and lit up a cigarette and drifted off into sleep. And he, when we got there, he was just a smoldering pile of uh, <clears throat> really burnt fat with a good portion of the body missing and only the legs remained there. It was very odd and the two hands were left lying there because hands haven't got much fat in them so they don't burn. But this provided this dreadful smell and uh, which is quite characteristic of, of this spontaneous combustion. <clears throat> so a very unusual case. It's the only one that I've ever come across. Tell me, Kenrick, do you allow yourself to get emotional? Were there any cases that have haunted you for a long time? You know, I think about them a lot. Um, and usually it's the children particularly that, that I find uh, are the ones that, I wouldn't say they make me emotional. I find it quite depressing. You know, that they, they really bother me. The rest, as I say, they are my patients and I just do my best for them. I, you know, the way I work it through is, is saying, I've just got to tell your story. I'm here to do that. There was one particularly horrible case, Echo Quebec Alpha, the plane that went down near Wanganui. Um, a pilot, eight passengers, two children and one baby died. Now, what struck me... Um, was how the impact affects the bodies. Um, the pilot's navigation map was stuck to the inside of his spine. And then more disturbingly, you, you knew there was a baby on board, but you couldn't find the baby. Can you, can you tell us something about that? Yeah, this was, this was a, a particularly bad accident. Uh, 
the, the aircraft had lost control at altitude and spun into the side of the mountain during the most atrocious weather. It was heavily overloaded. And I think there were eight or nine passengers on board. I, I can't quite recall. But we were able to retrieve um, most of the body, well, at least 60% of the body, bodies, parts of 60% of the bodies. But there were, the baby was missing and we couldn't find any sign of the baby. And I had a portion of a body there and I thought that this was a woman, but I wasn't sure. And um, when I started, did the autopsy and opened it up, I found the baby had actually gone through her ab abdominal wall and been thrown into her pelvis and was stuck in there just from the impact. And from that, it became clear to me that this was the mother and she'd had the baby sitting on her lap. And that's how the baby had ended up there. And it was interesting. I met her mother and her sister and talked to them about this. And um, they said that they were really, really pleased to hear that because they, the one thing that they'd always said to each other is they hoped that their daughter and uh, sister was holding the baby when it happened. And I was able to say to them, yes, I think she was. And then, you know, rather bizarrely, the baby ended up back inside the mother. Right inside the pelvis, yes. Yeah, wow. Right from where he, where, uh, he had already originally sprung. Um, one, one of the things I love about your writing, um, there are plenty of funny moments in the book, but what does come across in the book is the respect you have for the dead. You say, we should be reminded at all times that these were real people, no longer living, but were our patients to whom we owed a duty of care and compassion. Yes, I, I, I think people forget that pathologists are also physicians first and foremost. And um, our approach to our patients is the same as any, any doctors would be. At least I hope it is. Mm, let's talk about the penal system. In fact, let's talk about Mark Lundy, arguably the most publicized and controversial murder case of your career. What was your role in that murder case? Well, Mark Lundy was a salesman who was found guilty of murdering his wife and child um, with uh, by chopping their heads with an axe one night. And I was not the investigating pathologist, but I was called in to investigate uh, his, the shirt that he had been wearing that night. And on this, they had found two microscopic pieces of tissue, which I examined a smear from and said, to me, this looks like brain tissue. And they said, how will we prove this? So I set in place, my colleagues and I set in place um, a connection with a leading expert in Dallas, Texas, Rod Miller, who deals with this sort of work. And he was able to cut the piece off the shirt and turn it into a specimen, which could then have sections cut and be examined under the microscope. And we established beyond any reasonable doubt that this was brain tissue. And that was instrumental in leading to his conviction because, and then the DNA was his, his wife's. 
but but um, Lundy was meant to be 400 miles away or something at the time. Yes, he was he was uh, in Wellington, uh, which is a good two hour drive away. And to have got there would have been taken quite a drive, but um, certainly within the bounds of possibility. The case, of course, came back to haunt you years later. Um, this was the Crown Prosecution retrial at uh, Her Majesty's Privy Council in London. Now, at the appeal hearing in London, they even went as far as to suggest the brain was from a sausage. You must have been furious. Um, <laughs> you know, although you still had enough humor to suggest in the book having brains in your sausage during mad cow disease was something Kiwis would never tolerate, even if Brits did. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, well, I had to have a go, go at, the, at the Brits here. Yeah. The Privy Council was very interesting. I spent three days there and my evidence was given to their lordships. It was quite an interesting process. And of course, they, uh, they were dissenting views who thought it wasn't brain tissue. And their lordship said, well, how can we tell the difference between one expert and another? What you are required to do, they said to the Crown, is hold another trial and get two world experts, one for the prosecution, one for the defense, to work collegially together and tell us the truth, which is what they did in a second trial. And they said, beyond any shadow of a doubt, this is brain tissue. Well, I've got to tell you, I, I must tell my listeners, you must buy the books, The Cause of Death and the, the Quick and the Dead. The Cause of Death is absolutely fascinating and funny and moving and, uh, and sad and, uh, and remarkable. So please buy it, everyone. Um, Dr. Kinrick, Temple Camp, we are woefully out of time, but a thousand thanks for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you very much. Keep safe. In the wedding photos, they look like any other young couple, happy and in love as they take their first steps into a long and blissful marriage. The bride is laughing, her body wrapped in a spray of pure white lace. Then your eye is drawn to her missing right arm and the bandages protecting what is left. This is the story how Zanelli and Shlovo lost her arm to a croc attack whilst canoeing with her fiance, Jamie Fox, on the Upper Zambezi at Victoria Falls, just five days before this happy photo was shot. Zanelli is here today to share this horrific encounter. So Zanelli in Shlovo, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. Ah. I don't even know where to begin. This took place in May 2018, quite literally five days before your wedding to Jamie. Yep, that's correct. Uh, let's go back through the events that led to that moment you found yourself fighting for your life as a 16-foot, as I heard, Nile crocodile pulled you beneath the surface of the Zambezi River. You and Jamie were in Victoria Falls on a typical adventure safari. Take me through what happened until the croc went for you. Okay, so it was a few days before the wedding and Jamie had just come to Zimbabwe from the UK for the wedding. 
and I was so stressed out with all the planning and all the wedding stuff I had to do. He said, just come over to Victoria Falls, meet me there. We have a couple of days of just relaxation and just calm down, spend some quality time. So I went over there and met him there. And then we had a few activities the day before. And then on that particular day, we got up quite early, I think 6 a.m. And uh, we drove um, for some time, for about 30 minutes, to start our canoe excursion. Um, so we were part of a, we had hired a, a tour company, sort of, that arranged everything for us. So there was about, um, in total, we were about six couples doing this. So um, it was two people per canoe. So it was a beautiful day, nice and warm, typical Zimbabwean summer day. And we canoed um, down, the, down the Zambezi. So we had uh, two tour guides. So one tour guide was at the front and we had to follow him. Then the other tour guide was at the back of the trail and just making sure no one fell in and no one was struggling and all. So we were close to the tour guide at the front. So we canoed for about, uh, I'd say maybe about 45 minutes. And I think we were towards the end of the, the, the trail. And then the tour guide at the front who was closest to us said, follow me to the bank. We're now about to uh, end the, the excursion and get off. So as we followed him towards the bank, suddenly a crocodile just propped up next to me and stood upright with its nose in the air, like right next to me. And I was like, okay, is this really happening? I wasn't sure if, is this a joke of some sort? Like I, it was so hard to believe and it happened so suddenly. And for like five seconds, I just like looked at the tour guide who was like in front of me, like for instructions, what do I do? Should I panic? do you have an action plan for this? And he looked terrified. Like you could see he had no plan. He had never seen this before. He was scared himself. And you know, five seconds seems like it's a short time, but it's a very long time when you're in that situation. And before I knew it, the crocodile leapt onto our boat almost and bit into our boat and grabbed my arm and threw me into the water in one swift movement. Uh, so because it had pierced our our inflatable canoe, it became it, it began to deflate and then eventually Jamie also fell into the water because the canoe had deflated. And um, everything from there happened so quickly. Um, it grabbed me by the arm, it started like spinning me around and I was so dizzy. And he was tossing me in the water, tossing me on my back, on my stomach, on my back, on my stomach, all this time holding me by my arm. Oh my God, it was going into a death roll. Yeah, it was as if it was trying to drown me or tire me out. But um, I kind of feel like because I had a life jacket on that really like helped a bit because the crocodile seemed to get tired after a while and sort of like let me go. And then I floated up to the surface and like waved my, my other arm around to like show people where I was in case, hoping someone would pull me out of the water. But no one did. People just looked at me and they were all like terrified. And then the crocodile grabbed me again 
and pulled me under the water again and spun me around, tossed me around. And I was so exhausted and I could see the water around me just turning red and I could hear my bones cracking. And I was trying to sort of push it away from me, trying to scratch it, kick it, trying to push it, hoping it would let my arm go, but it didn't. And then after a while, again, it let me go for a brief second. I floated back up to the top. And then at that moment, the tour guide who was close to us managed to grab my arm, my other arm, and get me onto his canoe. Oh, and I... I'm not really sure what happened to the crocodile, if it ran away or someone did something to it, but it wasn't there anymore. It had left. I mean, what goes through your head as a crocodile drags you beneath the surface. I mean, do you, do you have time to actually think? Because, you, you know, as you said earlier, nothing prepares you for this. No. No, it, it happened. It happened so quickly. It happened in slow motion almost, but then very quickly as well. Like, you're in so much shock. I was still in disbelief the whole time, to be honest. And you're so cold from the water. You're like, your body's numb. It's... You don't have time to process that actually a crocodile is actually like trying to tear me from limb to limb. Uh, so they, they got you back onto their canoe and obviously the croc um, had been frightened away or decided to give up the chase or something like that. Uh, yeah. I, I should imagine at that stage you, you couldn't really remember much. Well, I was still conscious and very aware. I was just exhausted. I was tired. And at that time, I wasn't really in pain. I was still cold and numb and I think still in shock. Um, so I was carried onto the bank and I could tell by the looks on, of, on people's faces when they looked at me that it was really bad. Like some people couldn't look at me. My husband was crying. And I hadn't felt the pain at that point, but I realized looking at people's faces that this is really bad. And we're in the middle of nowhere in the bush and they had to call for a helicopter to airlift us from there because we were like in the middle of nowhere. Um, so first I was flown to a hospital in Victoria Falls, but they didn't have much uh, equipment and expertise to know what to do. So they had to call around other hospitals to see who could take us in and who who had the better surgeons that could attend to me. So I spent a few hours in Victoria Falls at the local hospital. And then I was then driven uh, to Bulawayo by ambulance, which took about seven hours. So this happened in the morning, I would say maybe about around 8 a.m. And I only got to the hospital just uh, before midnight in Bulawayo. And, and, and so they decided to remove your arm above the elbow, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, and, and then what? Uh, I mean, you had a, a wedding in five days' time. Nothing was going to hold this bride back. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, you quote in an interview, life is unpredictable. You know when they say, when you make plans, God laughs. God laughs. <laughs> that, makes, that makes so much more sense now. Um, of course, the weird thing uh, was that um, you and Jamie had more or less accepted the horrors of uh, 
whatever happened five days earlier. And yet at your wedding, you seem deliriously happy. I, you know, it, it, I just can't even tell that something horrific has happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say the last thing on my mind was the wedding when I got to the, after the amputation. But then our doctor did say, well, if you want to still get married, um, I can help you get ready, but it must be in the hospital grounds. And I thought, hmm, yeah, absolutely. Like, I would love to still get married, but I was a bit nervous about, like, what Jamie would think if he was still up for it or wanted time to think about it. So when they asked him separately, he said, oh, yeah, I still want to get married. So at that point, I couldn't walk. I was in so much pain. I had been in bed for, like, days a couple of days so I had to go through like a really rapid uh, physio to get me ready to at least get out of bed and like walk down the aisle. Um, as I said you look incredibly happy obviously they gave you some pretty good painkillers but um, <laughs> it wasn't the se quite the same for the guests was it? I mean they were quite shocked weren't they? Yeah they were very shocked. Uh, well, firstly, not all the guests could, we moved the wedding to the hospital grounds and not all the guests could be fitted into our little venue now because we had to keep it quiet as a hospital. So only a few of them were allowed to come to our new wedding venue. We had to move all the decorations, all of that to the hospital. Um, yeah, some of them were seeing me for the first time after the amputation at the wedding. Uh, lots of tears, some were like, it was very emotional for both me and the guests. But it was a beautiful day though. It was it was painful to see that this had happened to me, but I had overcome it. Like I, my life was sort of moving on from it. I was gonna say, um, I kind of feel like the joy and the excitement of still getting married kind of helped um, um, raise my mood, make me feel better and not dwell too much on what had happened and the pain and all the bad stuff. So it kind of um, made me feel better, gave me something to be excited about every morning, getting up and thinking, oh, we're a day closer to our wedding, it's still happening. So, so let's talk about the present. Um, you got your UK visa. You now live in England, obviously, with Jamie. How was the rehabilitation? Uh, did, was it good in England? Because uh, you, you were trying to get a prosthetic arm. Did that happen? Um, yes. So at the moment, I have a purely cosmetic prosthetic arm. So it has no functionality at all. But it just gives me better balance on my back and it just it looks like an another arm really if you didn't really look too closely you wouldn't know <laughs> so um unfortunately a functional prosthetic arm is very expensive out of our our reach but to be honest i have learned to get on with everything with one arm i cook dress myself work with the one arm, I've had to learn to do everything from scratch almost. And so far, it's going okay, I'm coping. May I quote what you said in another article? I'm more positive <laughs> now than I've always been. It, it kind of changed my life in the sense 
of I almost died. It's hard for me to explain to someone who wasn't there. I could have so easily died in there. It's not every day people survive a croc attack. So every day I wake up and I'm happy because I'm alive. Um, I just think people shouldn't let my story scare them off Zimbabwe. Um, like you said earlier, this was a, a very rare occurrence that this happened to me. Uh, it has changed my life forever, but I mean, Zimbabwe is beautiful. It's worth visiting. Um, so many lovely things to do there. I wouldn't go back in a canoe <laughs> myself, but <laughs> I would for sure go uh, back to Victoria Falls. It's a lovely place. On Saturday, 8th of October, 2016, journalist David Fox was enjoying a beer at the On On Billiard Bar in Sanur on the Indonesian island of Bali. After just one sip, he was tapped on the shoulder by a man who identified himself as a police officer, asking, do you have something on you? He did. And so began eight months of hell in a Balinese jail. Fox is here with me today to tell us about his Annus Horribilis inside Bali's notorious Karobican prison. So David Fox, welcome back to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks Pete, it's uh, nice to be here again, although I wonder if your audience won't get bored with hearing my dulcet tones, but anyway. David, I doubt that, and I promised everyone that I'd have you back to tell us about what happened that year, but first, Take us through the events of that day. Um, well, I mean, first an admission, you know, I have been a, uh, a bit of a weed smoker for most of my life, actually. Um, and, you know, knowing the consequences, I, uh, uh, you know, I can't say, you know, well, put it this way. I, I, was, uh, I, I was spending a normal day and uh, the person who owned the bar, uh, a character called uh, Joe, uh, he had been calling me up throughout the day saying, oh, I've run out of weed. Is there any chance you could possibly uh, sell me some? And as I kept replying to him, I don't sell weed. I'm not a, a, a dealer or anything like that. Um, and eventually I said, look, I'll bring you a joint this evening to the bar. And as you said, I was sit down at the bar. I had had a sip of beer and I had that tap on my shoulder. So this Joe chap, uh, his proper name, Giuseppe Serafino, was a friend of yours? Yeah, well, you know, insofar as he, you know, it was his bar. It was our sort of local. Uh, me and a whole lot of friends, we used to drink there regularly uh, after golf games, that sort of thing. So, you know, I knew him really well. I wouldn't say he was a friend. It wasn't like he was round at my house or anything like that. Uh, many people might ask, why did you take su such a risk? I mean... Indonesia is well known to carry life sentences for drug offences. Well, I, yes, I know that. But I wouldn't say I was taking particular risks. I was very, very careful. I only ever smoked you know, a joint on my balcony, you know, sort of last thing at night before I went to bed. Uh, I only ever bought it from a very, very trusted um, a foreign source who actually used to sell it at Joe's Bar, um, where a whole bunch of people would buy it. He'd come around once a month and we'd just buy some weed from him. So it was essentially a sting operation. Yeah, Joe had been caught buying crystal meth, which I knew nothing about. Uh, you know, uh, it wouldn't be a, a, something I'd ever try or anything like that. It was, 
And uh, they put the squeeze on him and told him, look, if you can give us a couple of other people, then we'll let you off. And, uh, and so he handed me up. For some reason, he decided I was going to be the sacrificial lamb. And, uh, we, you know, when the cops arrested me, they said the same thing. Tell us the name of the person you got it from and, um, and uh, we'll let you off. But, you know, you don't only have to have seen a couple of movies to know that's never going to happen. So I decided the buck stopped with me and uh, I didn't give any more names. Absolutely. I remember seeing pictures in most of the Australian dailies of you being paraded through Bali in chains with an orange jumpsuit and a sack pulled over your head. Frankly, it could have been anyone. But what's the real purpose of this awful parade? Is it simply to humiliate you? Uh, no, so the police can show off how clever they are. Uh, in fact, it's against uh, the United Nations human rights. Uh, they have very strict laws about it. You are not allowed to do that. Um, it, it's uh, something that's sort of been inherited from America, though, of all places, the perp walk, you know, the police you know, marching the arrested person. It's, it's basically for the police to show off, look at us, how clever we are, we've caught some international drug smugglers. And yet you have the sack over your head. I mean, really, you can't tell who it is, other than your height. In fairness, uh, I was the one who insisted they put it on, because they tried to make you parade without it on. Oh, wow. Uh, no, uh, and, uh, and I said no, uh, because I, I stuck to it, and I said they'd have to drag me out kicking and screaming. I thought it was bad enough that the news would be out and how friends and family would be so shocked by my arrest but i think even seeing me would be even worse which is why i thought well at least if i had a, a sort of a balaclava like covering it wouldn't seem as shocking but uh, obviously it had the opposite effect because at first yes i was charged with trafficking because i had brought a joint to joe i was charged with trafficking which carries very very severe penalties and so the whole idea was to get it down to being a user basically and um uh, a user as a result of addiction. Wow. And of course, the dealer was life imprisonment. Yes. It's incredible. Uh, David, let's talk about remand. By all accounts, a very special kind of hell. When you first got there, you were forced to go through an initiation. Can you describe that for us? Yeah, this, um, you divide it into two categories in, um, in Indonesian prisons. Uh, you, you mix together, but there's a, a definite hierarchy, I think similar to prisons and jails anywhere in the world. And in Indonesia, it's, uh, the two categories are narkoba, which means you're in on a drugs charge, or criminal, which means you're a thief or a, a murderer or a rapist or uh, something like that. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, the, uh, the narkoba, the, the drug offences, were definitely, you know, you higher up the scale, you know, you... you you get more privileges, if you like, and you uh, more social standing in jail. And the lower, the lower down you go, the thieves are probably next on the ladder. But then it goes down, you know, rapists and paedophiles, that sort of thing, are, are way, way down the pecking order. And so, depending on what your crime is, when you go into remand at first, you have to do, you know, if you if you've done something like theft or uh, or rape or or, or you know, paedophile or something like that, you know, you it's it's pretty severe you're going to get beaten pretty hard um you know you have to run a gauntlet uh you have to uh, for the first day or so it's it's really very very grim and uh and then after that you're left alone until you move to the big house but for uh, for the drug 
uh, for the drug offenders, for the narcoba, it's a lot more light-hearted. Even if you say you have to do what they call a chicken walk, which is walking on your haunches for a hundred meters, while people are sort of slapping you, and then um, they throw sandbags at your belly. Uh, it, you know, it's it's pretty ironic though. Um, Joe actually ended up sharing the same. St- the same tiny cell as you. I mean, that must have been uncomfortable, to say the least. We had that for about just over a month, I would say, and it was intolerable. It was actually driving me mad. I think if anything was going to to finish me off, it was that. Because we were the only two guaylos in there for a while, Um, the only two uh, 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 foreigners, uh, is what I mean. They put us in the tiniest cell. Uh, And then, you know, then another two... uh, uh, foreigners were in there as well so there are four of us and this was in a cell that was meant for one person it's a how big was that uh it was about one and one and uh, one meter 25 wide <laughs> by about uh by oh my my feet could touch the other end and so where it do was you just have to do your six. business oh there's a hole in the floor at the at the end of the cell that's it God. Uh, you know, one of the things I found horrific um, was the way lawyers quite literally drained you of all your finances in literally a matter of days. I mean, it was like a slot machine. They preyed on prisoners knowing that they were panicking and would do anything to get out or to get a more lenient sentence. Well, it's very difficult to get out at all once you enter the prison, into the arrest system uh, in Indonesia. It's almost impossible, you know. You you you're going to stay the distance. It's it's hard to be bailed for anything in Indonesia, and and yes, the lawyers are, um, you know, because the Indonesian system is such that it's it's a question of how much you how much you pay is how much you are going to uh, uh, eventually be sentenced to. It's a uh, it's a reality of the system. Uh, there's a terribly touching story about a time when you were incredibly depressed. Or to borrow an expression from you, the black dog was snapping at your ankles. It was one of those typical Balinese downpours, and you just went and stood in the rain. Tell us that story, David. Yeah, it was. Um, it, it, it was the afternoon um, uh, let out, so we get about half an hour, and you get your meal, and you all sit down in this uh, uh, sort of crocodile line and eat. And you and there's usually, you know, you've wolfed down your meal in about five minutes, but then the heavens opened up. And it was just, it was, you know, compared to when you're trying to wash indoors in these horrible cells, you know, uh, hanging above the uh, the hole in the ground, suddenly it was the, a time to be able to be cleaned and washed and purified almost. And it was just fantastic. I remember just standing out there and and I, I kind of went through a bit of a wobble, if you like, and I was, you know, blubbing like a baby. But fortunately, no one could see because it was just pouring with rain and you couldn't tell... Yeah, you couldn't tell tears from the storm, to be honest. I mean, they all thought you were slightly mad, but they all came and joined you. They did, yeah, they did. And then suddenly uh, one person thought, well, I'm going to get in on this, and then another did. And then half the half the jail was uh, was running around, splashing in the rain, and it was... Uh, and then sliding up and down the uh, the oh. tiles. It was, it was quite fun in the end. It's a, a very evocative picture. Um, all prisons have a big boss, even the terrible 1980s TV show Prisoner Cell Block H had vinegar tits. Tell me about the big boss in Karabakin. Was he someone to fear? It sounds to me like it was quite a democratic process choosing a boss. It, it really was. I mean, uh, it, it, that system existed in Remond as well, but in Remond it changed because 
people were cycled out of there every three months. Yeah. So when the when the current big when I was in there, there was a current big boss, and he left after about a month, and we had effectively we had an election to pick the next big boss, you know, and and that big boss then would pick five or six trustees. So these guys wouldn't be locked up in the cells at night. They would sleep in the corridors effectively. They'd be the ones who negotiate with the guards, uh, that sort of thing. And, and in Karabakan, it's pretty much the same thing, except each block has its own sort of big boss and a little committee. And then each person on each block then forms part of the, the major prison committee, which deals with the, uh, with the hierarchy. How did Joe the Snitch fare in this whole thing? He was he was terrible. For, well, for one, he were, I put word out that I was going to um, beat him up. Okay, I'm going to get to that in a second. That is something, and I don't know how to pronounce it. It's called Gigit. Gigit. Yeah. Gigit. Okay. Um, tell us about Gigit. Well, Gigit is uh, effectively you don't rat on someone, and if you rat on someone, then you are allowed to uh, you know take out your uh, take out your, your revenge on them and this is organized the prisoners will organize it um and you're allowed to do that once in remand one because word gets out the, the the police and the and the guards tell everybody in jail what everybody's in for you know there's no secrets in there and so it you know joe was known as a as a rat straight away and so i was given the opportunity to sort of um beat the crap out of him in remand um, which I was, you know, I desperately wanted to do. I was looking to lash out at someone and blame anybody but myself for being in there. And, uh, and you know, I, you know, this is with the, a few years behind me now, time for reflection, even though he did clearly rat on me, you know, ultimately I was the person to blame for being in jail. And, but I, uh, you know, when I, when they found us a corner away from all the prying CCTV and I wanted to wail into him, he just fell on the ground and, and curled up in a ball, and it was just, it was hopeless. I gave him, I gave him a couple of slaps across the face, and that was it. I mean, it's very Shawshank. Uh, in fairness, you must have been absolutely spoiling for a fight, and but disappointed that he just crawled up into a ball. Yeah. I, After all, this man had ruined your life. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, and as I say, at that point, it wasn't without the distance of realizing that, you know, I've got to put some of the blame on myself. All right, let's get on to the big group, the Bali Nine. In April 2005, nine Australians, known as the Bali Nine, were convicted for attempting to smuggle 8.3 kilograms of heroin out of Indonesia. The heroin was valued around 4 million Australian dollars and was bound for Australia. The two ringleaders, um, Andrew Chan and Mioran Sukumaran, were sentenced to death and executed in April 2015. Uh, there were six other members left, C.Y. Chen, Michael Chugai, Tan Duck Tan Nguyen, Matthew Norman, Scott Rush, Martin Stevens. They all got life imprisonment. And then another one, Renee Lawrence, got 20-year sentence but was released after it was commuted in November 2018. But it was Matthew Norman, or Matty, who resonates the most in your life. Tell us about him. Yeah, when I arrived there, um, uh, the, the two ringleaders, as you said, had been executed. And uh, there were only 
two of the the remaining seven left in Corobican. Uh, that was CY and Maddie Norman. The others had been moved for one reason or another to different prisons in in Bali, uh, in around Indonesia and Bali, mostly because of drugs or bad behaviour or that sort of thing. And um, in fact, they, all of them had gone through. They had been sentenced to uh, life, and then they appealed, and then were sentenced to death as a result of their appeal, and then appealed again, and then they were sentenced back to life again. Oh it, was, it was a bit very traumatic. But anyway, it was just Maddie and CY. I mean, were, they were guilty. Oh, that, absolutely. There's no question about it. Um, but uh, but bear in mind that if they had been caught in Australia bringing those drugs into Australia, they would have probably done four or five years at the most. That's correct. And the Australian authorities knew about this and yet allowed them to be caught. It's a huge scandal. It still, it still resonates today, the scandal about that. But that's besides the point. Is yeah. Anyway, the, the, so the two who were left in, in, uh, in Karabakan, and the one who struck me the most, I, I, I got to know Matty very well and quite early on. And he was just a first-class bloke. I mean, really, he uh, he was, you know, he's dashing, handsome, you know, fit, just with a great attitude, you know. And I and I asked him, and I said, how do you how do you deal with this? How do you, you know, how do you get up every day and and just and he and he and he, and he said, look, I. You know, I wake up and I say, "What can I do for somebody else in this hellhole today?" And that's what I'm, I'm how I'm going to get through the day. And he really inspired me, even though he's, you know, probably young enough to be my son. I, I really drew strength from his attitude and how. And I know he has dark days, and uh, I know he has, you know, he, he and and dark years sometimes. But I'm very confident the end is very, very close for him. By the way, very, very close. You think that he might be released quite soon yeah, I, for good behaviour? Yeah, I think they'll get their sentences commuted, the remainder, the, the, the rest of them. David, you famously said in your blog, when you were due to be released, that is, if Matty could be given a month of freedom in exchange for me staying behind for an extra month, I would do it in an instant. I would have done it in a heartbeat, absolutely. David Fox, we're out of time. Thank you for sharing the story with us. But perhaps I should ask before going, do you have any plans to go back to Bali? I'd love to. Um, I'm, I'm Technically, I'm banned for life, but I'm going through a process now where I'm trying to get that ban uh, lifted. I, I hold nothing against the Indonesians. Uh, you know, the system... It wasn't as if I was targeted. Everybody goes through the same drama there, whether you're Indonesian or foreigner. If you're caught, obviously I was more high profile because I was a foreigner and a journalist. Uh, yeah, but I, um, you know, I, I learned to speak Indonesian while I was in jail, and it seems a pity to waste the language. I'd love to go back to Bali. Um, I, I would uh, dearly love to. So yes. You've just listened to snippets from my interviews with Sarah Fox. Kinrick Templecamp, Zanelian Schlavu, and David Fox. All the very best for 2021. Stay safe and keep listening. <laughs>